Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these promises of resurrection. And I pray for us, as we uh, consider them, that they would be more than uh, mere theory, but they would be the foundation of hope for us. And as we reflect on your own resurrection from the dead, Lord Jesus, I pray that it would give us an assurance of our own coming resurrection from the dead. And as we look back and forward, I pray it would change how we live our lives in the middle. Uh, Lord, please strengthen us. Uh, may we be a people of, of great hope, of great confidence, because you are for us. And not even death can stand between us and your love and your power. And so, Lord, with this confidence, we pray to you. I pray now that you would bless uh, the preaching of your word. I ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word and that through me and by the ministry of your spirit, you would change us from one degree of glory to another. I pray for anyone here who has not yet wrestled fully with the doctrine of the resurrection, that you would give them new insight, new clarity, new vision, uh, new uh, affirmation that they might see the gospel for all that it is. I pray these things in spite of my own weaknesses and my own frailties, my own sinfulness. Bless us and glorify yourself. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We are in the weeks before Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, but especially once a year, we call it Easter, uh, and we celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus came, lived a perfect life, carried our sins in his body, was nailed to the cross on a Friday, received the full wrath of God, died in our place, and was buried. He was dead. And then on the third day, he was raised to life. This was last week's sermon, and uh, I want to commend Blair Hansen for just a wonderful job expositing the Word of God. If you were not here or you have not listened to that yet, I do commend it to you. Go online and listen to it. Uh, what Blair preached last week is the foundation of our hope. It's the foundation of the gospel, and it's the foundation of this sermon series as we look for resurrection of the dead. It, it, it forms the foundation of what we're going to be talking about today. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then what are we doing here? You might as well go and do something else with your time. Give your money elsewhere. Don't put your hope in what we're talking about. But in fact, as we will see and as we saw last week, uh, the Word of God makes a powerful argument for the fact that Jesus Christ was indeed raised from the dead. Last week, that was the main point, and Blair talked about several witnesses to this fact. There was the Corinthian church itself, which you might say is a living witness or uh, a corporate witness to the resurrection. The fact that these pagan, uh, false god-worshipping, sex-crazed people could actually be saved because they believe that Jesus Christ was fully God and then he died for their sins and raised, was raised from the dead. That is proof in itself that there must be some power in this, that the Holy Spirit applied that truth to their lives and gave them new birth. 
Then there's the written witness, or the ancient witness, which is the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Uh, on the very first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he said, I want to show you everything that was written about me in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their eyes and their minds and their understanding to the Old Testament scriptures. And particularly, he says, it was written about me that I must die and be raised from the dead. Last week we saw in the beginning of this chapter, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It's the Old Testament scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So there's an ancient witness. This was not a new idea. This was the fulfillment of ancient promises. Then there's the denying witness, Peter himself. Uh, and I don't know if we often think about this, but the fact is the very last time that Peter and Jesus had an interaction, Peter had just denied his Lord for the third time. And Jesus looked up at him, and Peter fled. Now, probably the greater hope for Peter was that Jesus would rise from the dead. Whether he believed it or not, he wasn't sure. But if Jesus actually does rise from the dead, he has to go face to face with the one that he had denied. Have you ever thought about that? How fearful Peter must have been to come before the risen Lord and say, look, Lord, I denied you in your deepest, gravest hour. I don't know what, what you would be thinking, but if I was Peter, I would wonder if the Lord would receive me or reject me. But the Lord appeared to Peter, and Peter says, he appeared to me. I denied him, but I affirm that I saw him. Then there's the apostolic or the invested witness, the 12 apostles. They, they knew Jesus better than anyone else, maybe other than his family. And they saw him alive. There was one of them that doubted, right? Thomas, I won't believe it unless I see with my own eyes, unless I can put my hands and you know, my fingers in his wounds, in his hands, and in his side, I won't believe it. So Jesus shows up to him, and Thomas, he says, Thomas, come here, put your hand in my side, it's me. And this Thomas proclaimed the risen Christ along with the others. And then he, uh, there's the corporate witness of more than 500 people. You know, you, as Blair said, you might be able to say, well, you were just sort of hallucinating. You, you've made it up if there was one or a handful. But 500 people at one time, go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. You cannot manifest a hallucination of that proportion. Uh, you might be able to get the, the, the 12 to say we saw Jesus because they were so invested. They were going to see this movement through till the end. So maybe they would lie for it, but 500 people lie for this. Many of them probably martyred because they said that they had seen Jesus alive. Then there's the unbelieving witness, James, the brother of Jesus. James did not believe. James thought his brother Jesus was insane. Let me gather you, brother, before you make a fool of yourself. Come home. Come back to Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? Well, who are my mother and my brothers? Not those who don't believe in me, James. But those like you who hear my words and receive them. You're my mother. You're my brothers. James, who grew up with Jesus, did not believe until he saw his brother on the other side of the grave. And then James was a pillar in the Jerusalem church, and then he was martyred. 
And then there's all of the apostles. This is, I believe, just a catch-all for everyone who had seen Jesus. He's like, look, Jesus appeared to so many. An apostle, there's the big A apostle, the 12. And then there's a small A apostle, which is anyone who had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Because Jesus wasn't just showing up willy-nilly on anybody's doorstep to say, hey, look at me, I'm alive. He was, he was coming particularly to people who he had hand-selected to send out to bear witness to his resurrection. And that's what apostle means, is someone who is sent. So there's a lot of apostles who had seen Jesus and they've been sent out to declare that he has been raised from the dead. And then the clincher for me, there's the persecuting witness. There's a man named Saul who hates Jesus. There's a man named Saul who hates the church of Christ. There's a man named Jesus who made it his life's ambition to find people who believed in the resurrected Jesus to arrest them, to kill them. And then he claims that he saw the resurrected Jesus. And then he becomes a champion for the cause and gives his life because he says, I saw him. I think Blair shared this last week. There was a time when I was a fool. I was saved but I wanted to unbelieve for whatever reason. I was in my undergrad. I could not unbelieve the resurrection because of these witnesses, and especially Paul. Here's a man who hated Christ, then he becomes a champion for Christ, and he dies for him. I mean, and the reason that he gives, it's not a reason that somebody else gives, the reason that he gives is because he says he saw with his own eyes the resurrected Christ. He didn't see a vision of Jesus. He didn't have a, an impression that Jesus might be greater than a mere mortal. He saw the resurrected Lord. Not a ghost, but Jesus Christ in body. And Jesus spoke to him. And Jesus says, Saul, why do you persecute me? I'll show you how much you must suffer for my sake. I could not unbelieve the resurrection. How about you? Do you believe that there was a man who claimed to be God, who claimed to carry the sin of the world in his body, who claimed to die a death for the whole world, who actually did die, was buried, and the corpse that was wrapped and laid in a tomb stood up and walked out of the tomb. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, that's what you must believe to be saved. And we're not talking about a spiritual resurrection. We're not talking about, oh, look at Jesus' ghost. He made that impossible on the very first day of his resurrection. You can read about it in Luke 24. I am not a ghost. I'm not an ethereal spirit. I am me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. It is I myself. Touch me. Press in against me. This is my flesh. This is, these are my bones. Give me a fish to eat. We're not talking about spiritual resurrection. We're talking about bodies coming back to life. We're not talking about a, a corpus of teaching that outlived the Master. 
We're not, we're not talking about, oh, well, his teachings are his resurrection. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a man who died and came back to life. If you don't believe that Jesus died and came back to life, how will you ever believe that you yourself will come back to life? I'm not talking about floating up into heaven. I'm not talking about being a detached, bodiless, ethereal spirit. I'm not talking about a collection of intellectual ideas. I'm not talking about some platonic higher order. I'm talking about a body that we will bury in the ground that will come back to life when Jesus commands your body to rise. If you don't believe that Jesus died, how will you believe that you yourself will rise? And that is the bedrock of the Christian faith. In fact, once you hear this news, if you reject it, you cannot call yourself a Christian. You cannot claim to be a follower of Christ if you do not believe that your body will be resurrected in bodily form. And I'm being intentionally redundant. You see, this was exactly the problem in the Corinthian church. They seem to be able to get their head around the resurrection of Jesus. But they could not, at least some of them, could not get their minds around the fact that they themselves would come back to life after they died. And that's the issue here. Some people, though they might have affirmed the resurrection of Jesus, denied their own bodily resurrection. They might have said something like this. Well, I believe that Jesus came back to life and so will I. In fact, I'm already resurrected. I've been born again. I'm a new person. I'm not the same kind of person I was before. This is my resurrected life. And Paul says, that's not what I'm talking about. Others might have said, well, you know, I believe I'll be resurrected from the dead too. My soul will ascend up into that heavenly netherworld and I will live forever with Christ in my soul. That's not what Paul is talking about. He says, no, that's, that's not it. You know, any Greek philosopher can believe in the immortality of the soul, uh, the ascension of the soul. That's not the Christian faith. And I don't know about you, but I've been to a lot of Christian funerals where you would think that that is the extent of our hope. That's not the end of our hope. When we die, will our souls go up to heaven to be with Christ? Yes, but that is like a waiting room. And when Christ comes back to the earth, we come with him. And he commands our dead bodies to rise and our souls rejoin our bodies and we are raised back to life. That's the hope of the gospel. And that's what we have to believe if we are to call ourselves by the name of Christ. Now I just want, before we get into this, I've already given you the answer, but we're going to tease it apart. We're going to take a look at how do we make sense of this? But first... Let's just take a moment. Where are we? Don't, these, these are rhetorical questions. You don't need to answer out loud, but answer to God. Where are you? When you think about the hope that you have in Christ, how far does your hope reach? Does it spring you from hell? I hope so, but is that all? Does it give you entrance in a spiritual, ethereal, I don't like using the word spiritual because as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, spirit, the resurrection of the body is a spiritual thing. But is it an ethereal, ghost-like, floaty nothingness up there somewhere? Is that the extent of the hope? I think for a lot of Christians, that's as far as we've thought about this. That's not, that's, that's not 
the goal of the Christian life. I've met a lot of Christians who say that they don't believe in the resurrection of their bodies or they say they don't think it's that important. They say it's, you know, well, I don't know why that matters as long as I go to heaven. I'm here to say that it's, it's the core of what we believe. If we don't hold on to resurrection, we have nothing. That's what we're going to look at today. Paul, in fact, links our own bodily resurrection with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He says you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the resurrection of Jesus in bodily form from the dead without having our own bodily resurrection from the dead. And we cannot be raised bodily from the dead if Jesus had not been raised bodily from the dead. Take a look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and in fact, that's exactly what is proclaimed, Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, to Paul, it just was a logical inconsistency. You're not thinking, is what Paul is saying. If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, why don't you believe that we will not be raised from the dead. It, you just, it doesn't make sense to Paul to have one without the other. And then he repeats himself twice more. Take a look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, and he's talking about our own bodily resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. If, if, you, if, if we could prove that we're not going to rise from the dead, then it necessarily means that Jesus did not rise from the dead. So if you throw away your own resurrection from the dead, you may not realize this, but logically you follow that thinking all the way through. If you, if you fully grasp why Jesus died and was raised in the first place by denying our own bodily resurrection from the dead, in effect, what we are doing is we are denying the resurrection of Jesus. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, everything falls apart. It's, it's like pulling on a thread that before you know it, the whole sweater is just a heap of yarn on the floor. You can't pull that string effectively and keep the sweater. And he repeats himself in verse 16. Take a look. If the dead are not raised, meaning us, then not even Christ has been raised. It's definitive. Paul necessarily links our resurrection with the resurrection of Christ. Or we could say it the other way. The resurrection of Christ necessitates the resurrection of his believers. You cannot have one without the other. But why? Why is it that Christians in popular theology, not good theology, but popular theology find no logical inconsistency here? Many Christians. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and I think I'll go to heaven. Logically inconsistent. What makes that inconsistent? In order to understand Paul's logic here, we have to understand why Christ was raised in the first place. He wasn't raised for his own benefit. He was raised for our benefit. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. This is reviewing back into last week's sermon. 
Chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Why did he die? For our sins. The death of Christ was a substitutionary death. We all understand that, right? He died our death. We all sinned, so we all must die. Jesus came so that he could die in our place. He died to take the punishment that we deserve. He died to carry the penalty that is on us. He died because of our guilt. So we all get the fact that he, he died in our place in accordance with the scriptures, as Paul said. This was, this was long prophesied, long foreseen. So his death was... Uh, substitutionary in our place. Then he was buried. Then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now why was he raised? The same logic that goes into his death has to go into his resurrection. If he died in our place, then he was also raised back to life in our place. So as goes Christ, so goes humanity, at least those of us who believe in him. See, the whole doctrine of Jesus, his incarnation, is that he's fully God. God doesn't need to die and come back to life for his own good, for his own benefit. Everything that Jesus did in the flesh, everything that Jesus did as one of us, and the doctrine of Christ goes on. He's not only fully God, he's fully human. Everything that makes you or me a human being, Jesus shares. But everything that he did in his humanity was not for his own benefit. In fact, taking on human form forever, he endures in his humanity, was entirely for our sake. You see, the enduring humanity of Jesus Christ, what do I mean by that? He continues to be a man somewhere between five and seven feet in the flesh, in heaven. He's one of us, even while he's fully God. His enduring humanity is a testimony to to the enduring sacrifice of Christ. You see, before he was one of us, he was God. And he's still God, but he's also one of us. The endurance of his humanity is not for his own sake. He could, hypothetically, throw off his humanity. He could say, well, I'm done with this being human thing and revert to his pre-incarnate form. I, I don't think that's an impossibility for him, and yet he will not do that. Why? When he throws off his humanity, which he never will do, but if he was to throw off his humanity, do you know what he does? He throws us off. Our union with Christ depends entirely in his humanity. But going back to the point, the Son of God, who is fully one with the Father and the Spirit, who has always been and always will be, needs not die and come back to life. We need him to die. We need him to be raised from the dead. Because unless he dies, then we die for our own sin. And unless he is raised from the dead, we won't be raised from the dead. And somewhere along the line, in popular, bad Christian theology, 
It's the death that matters, but not the resurrection. Now, don't get me wrong. The death matters. But the death matters only insofar as you cannot bury a man who's still alive. And a, a man who has not died cannot be raised from the dead. Do you know that if Jesus had not been violently murdered by us, by human beings, he would still be alive as a man because he never sinned. So he need not die. His death was for our sin. His resurrection was for our resurrection. See, the resurrection of Jesus validates his death. The resurrection of Jesus says to the world that Jesus did in fact die for our sins. Now I just want to think this through a little bit more. What's the relationship between death and resurrection for, of Jesus? And then we'll see how that necessarily incorporates us. Death comes about because of sin. Right? Resurrection is the conquering of death. If Jesus conquers death, he necessarily has also conquered what? Sin. Because sin is the reason for death. If death is vanquished, then the reason for that death is also vanquished. So just to repeat, Jesus did not die for his own sins. Jesus had no sin. Jesus need not die for himself. Therefore, he died for us. Now, here's the point. Which means that Jesus, in his resurrection, it validates that he actually did die for our sin. But he was not raised, even in bodily form, to conquer death for himself. Because he had never sinned. His resurrection declares that he conquered death and therefore sin for us. You follow that? His resurrection proves that our sin problem, not his sin problem, our sin problem has been dealt with. It's over. When he, when he hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, he's not talking about his own life. He's talking about our sin problem. It is finished. He has dealt with the problem introduced by Adam in the garden and had plagued humanity ever since. It is finished. I have dealt with the sin problem. If I have dealt with the sin problem, I have also dealt with the death problem. And his resurrection from the dead validates that. But again, it validates that he has, he has died for our sin and he has been raised from the dead for our death, not his own. In some, then, the whole reason for the incarnation, the whole reason that Jesus became a man, or I should say, to be more particular, because Jesus is the name of the man, the whole reason that the Word, the Son of God, became a man the whole reason that this man lived a perfect life and died on a cross and was raised bodily from the dead was to blaze a trail for us. 
Everything He did was for us. What Jesus did, He did not do for Himself. He did it for the glory of the Father, yes. But the glory of the Father is the salvation of a humanity that had rebelled against Him. Praise be to God. Now, did you follow all that? It is nonsensical. If you followed all that, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense to believe that Jesus would come to die and be raised for any other reason than to assure us of our own bodily resurrection from the dead. If all of that is true, if our sin has been dealt with, then we must be raised from the dead. We will die a death unless Christ returns because we've all sinned in this body. And so God, being just, says, well, the sentence for your sin is death. But I have dealt with the greater problem, and because sin no longer has any power over you, therefore death gets does not get the last word. Therefore, you will rise. Just as Christ was risen. We cannot be raised unless Christ has been raised, but Christ has been raised, not for Himself, but for us. Now to further make this point, so there's the logic of it all. To further make that point, now Paul will list six tragedies that come forth from the idea that, that we will not rise from the dead. That, that if we don't rise from the dead, it means that Christ has not been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if that were true, you have six tragedies that you've got to deal with. So I'm going to go through these six tragedies and that will, that will take us to the end of our time. Number one, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. Take a look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What does Paul mean, our preaching is in vain? Our preaching is a total waste of time. It, it, it is useless it, it it's all about entertainment and self-delusion it's it's offering false hope it, it's telling you a lie it, and, and he's not only talking about his preaching about the resurrection of christ you know any talk about about anything from the bible is is futile without the resurrection of jesus because it's the resurrection of jesus that proves that this book is trustworthy Jesus himself said, uh, affirmed these scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and the New Testament scriptures bear witness to his teaching, to his claims about himself, to the hope of the gospel. And Paul says, you know, none of it matters. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, all of this is, is, is rubbish. It's, it's a bunch of lies. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus claimed to be equal to God. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he was a liar. Or he was a lunatic, to use an old ap ap uh, apologetic. He was either lying or he was crazy. But in fact, he was raised from the dead, which proves that he truly is the Lord of glory. So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. 
without the resurrection, he's one of the other two. You cannot claim to be equal to God. You cannot claim to have the power to forgive sins. You cannot say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, yet though he die, yet so shall he live. You cannot say such things if when the Romans crucify you, you die and you are buried and you stay dead. But in fact, nobody was, has ever been able to produce the body of Jesus. That would have been easy, right? All, all of the naysayers, all of the doubters, all of the people who said that he was a, a, a crazy man. Well, here's the body. Because, see, that would be all the proof that anyone would need to know that this man was a liar or he was a lunatic. But nobody's found the body. The empty tomb is witness itself that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But let make no mistake, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, you don't have to listen to a word that I or anyone else says from this pulpit. Secondly, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is vain. Our faith is futile. It's worthless. It'll lead to nothing. Believe all you want but you're believing in an empty, hopeless superstition if Jesus stayed dead. Take a look at the second half of verse 14. First part, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And then the second part, and your faith is in vain. So it's not just uh, an exercise in futility to preach about Jesus. It's a total uh, exercise in futility to believe in him. Everything that you believe is hollow, shallow, not leading to anything. Now, I want you to remember what we've already gone over. This means if you don't believe in your own bodily resurrection from the dead, then preaching is useless and your own faith is useless. If you believe simply so that you can get out of hell and float up in the sky, then your faith is in vain. It's not going to bring about what you hope it will bring about. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus and if in the resurrection of Jesus, your own resurrection from the dead. Otherwise, believe all you want. You can have, great, you can have a great doctrine of election. You can have great doctrine of justification. You can understand creation. You, can, you could be able to parse this whole Bible, but if you don't believe that at the end, when, when you're buried in the ground, that your body will come back to life, it's all for nothing. That's how important this doctrine is. Thirdly, and obviously these all go together, right? Like, so they all hinge together. If Christ was not raised from the dead, or put another way, if, if we won't be raised from the dead, then we are found to be misrepresenting God. We are saying something about God that is not true. Take a look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Why does Paul say that? Well, because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Look, we're going out into the world telling people that Jesus was raised back to life by God. 
So if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we're saying a lie about God. We're saying that something that God did didn't actually happen. So we're misrepresenting what he's all about. That's exactly what Paul says. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Do you see how he brings back our own resurrection of the dead there? If you claim that you will not be raised bodily from the dead, then you are misrepresenting God. Or, or sorry, we are. I am the one who who proclaims the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection from the dead. Uh, If we won't be raised, if Christ was not raised, then I am lying to you about God. I'm lying to you about God's plans. I'm lying to you about God's promises. I am lying to you about God's power. That's a tragedy. And what a waste of time for us if that were so. If the dead are not raised, there's no reason for Christ to have been raised at all. Number four, if Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We've spoken about that. And if your faith is futile, if you're believing, what do we believe? We believe that we've been justified. We believe that our sins have been forgiven. But if Christ hasn't been raised, and accordingly, if we're not going to be raised, believe all you want, your sins have not been dealt with. You are still in your sins. Forgiveness of sins is directly dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. We're so used to thinking that the forgiveness of sins is directly dependent upon the death of Jesus, and that's true. Because you see, in the mind of Paul, and in the mind of the Holy Spirit, and in the witness of the Scriptures, you cannot separate the death from the resurrection of Jesus. If he died, he was also raised. So if you only have a death, and you don't have a resurrection, then your sins haven't been dealt with. And you're still in your sins. Indeed, the penalty for sins was paid on the cross. And with the removal of sin's penalty, there's no need to be dead. Just see how that goes together. If the penalty for sin is removed, there's no need to be dead. Death is the direct result of sin. Sin is the direct cause of death. You remove sin, death vanishes. You remove sin, death vanishes. So what you believe about Good Friday, about the crucifixion and death of Christ, has a necessary corresponding element over death and resurrection. Resurrection is the logical, indeed the necessary result of sin's atonement. If sin's been covered, then resurrection necessarily comes. Because God is not a God of death and punitive judgment, but of life and of love. He has found a way to remove sin. If you remove sin, he removes death, and we live. But if there's no resurrection, then death wins. Death gets the last word. Sin wins. And if sin wins, 
then there's no forgiveness. And if there's no forgiveness, you're still lost in your sins. Flowing out of this, reason number five. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have died have perished. See, this of any verse in the Bible leaves absolutely no room, zero space for the belief that we will just escape these bodies and go up to heaven. Paul here says, if Christ has not been raised, not only are we still in our sins, but those who die perish. They don't go to heaven and float around and and live a bodiless existence. That's Greek philosophy. That's false Gnostic gospel heresy. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What does it mean to have fallen asleep in Christ? It means to have died. Those who have died believing in Jesus Christ, if if Christ hasn't been raised and if they won't be raised, then they've actually perished. Death is the end of them. They, They lose and death wins. You see, Jesus did not come to give us escape from this world. He did not come to destroy this world. He came to redeem this world. When God created the world, he looked at it and he says, it's very good. And then we ruined it. So then God came to take it back. Now how does God take back the world if he throws away your body? How does God redeem his creation if he says your body is just sort of a necessary evil for a time that you need to escape from? You you need to be liberated from it. You need to sort of ascend up into heaven in your soul and, and be done with your body. Well, that negates Genesis 1 altogether. When God looked at the world that he created, he says it's very good. God's not going to throw away something that he has evaluated to be very good. And he has evaluated these bodies to be very good. Now we've ruined them. We've introduced sin, aging, death, sickness. But God didn't come to give us escape from the bodies we ruined. He came to redeem the bodies that we have ruined. How is he going to do that? He's going to raise them up. We take our bodies into the grave by our sin. God raises them up. He, he, he glorifies them and he will say of our bodies once again, they are very good, indestructible, immortal, imperishable, very good bodies. So we have hope for victory over death, but if we don't believe in resurrection, bodily resurrection, that's no hope of victory at all. In fact, what we're saying is death gets the last word. You know, I love officiating over Christian funerals, as sad as it is, because I get to stand up and say, death doesn't win. It looks like death has won, but death has not won. Death does not get the last word. God will raise this body from the grave. I think I told you this a year ago, but one of my greatest moments at my previous church, uh, one of our deacons, Ed Kruliak, uh, was diagnosed with leukemia, Two weeks before he died, I went with him. He wanted me to go and help him to arrange his funeral. So we went to the funeral home, and he picked out his casket and everything. And, I mean, that's a pretty sorrowful day, isn't it? And so we were there, and we were making all of the arrangements. And then we went to the cemetery, and we went and picked out his plot where his body was going to be buried. And we stood over top of it. 
And he knew that he had days, not months, not years. He knew that within days, his body was going to be buried in that ground. And so I opened up this chapter, and we read this chapter, and I said, Ed, I want you to just know, and he did know. We've talked about this a lot. This, from this spot, the body that we're going to deposit here, and I, I use the word plant, the body that we're going to plant here, like a seed in the ground. When the Lord returns, he's going to call for you, and your body that we put in the ground, that we plant here, will rise. And you will, with, with the eyes, your own eyes, not with the eyes of your soul, not with the eyes of your heart, but with your very own eyes, from this spot, you will behold Jesus Christ. And he cried, and I cried, and what glory. I wasn't talking to him about escaping his body and floating up in heaven. Although I did, I said, no, a door will be open to you, and you will go to be with the Lord, Philippians 1. But that's not the end. You will rise from the dead, and your body will live forever. Reason number six. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. That's quite a statement. Of all people, we are most to be pitied? Couldn't you find someone that's more pitiful than us? No. If, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if we will not be raised bodily from the dead, then that you cannot find a more pitiful person than those of us gathered in this room. Why would he say that? He says that because if we're not going to be raised from the dead, we have a false hope and we are investing our life to the death in something that will never happen. Take a look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, that is, if we're not going to be raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If we readily endure suffering, if we readily endure persecution, if we prepare ourselves, should the day come for martyrdom to give our bodies, and we're not going to be raised from the dead, then it's all for nothing. It's, it's an exercise in vanity and self-delusion, and we are a pitiable lot of people. Can you see the weight of this doctrine? If we remove a confident belief in our own bodily resurrection from the dead, then we are in effect denying that Jesus was ever raised from the dead. The two are that closely linked. Because Jesus did not die and come back to life for his own sake, he did it for us. Now, if we deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are, in effect, denying the value of preaching. You've just wasted your last hour. We are denying the worth of our faith. You've wasted your life since you came to faith. We are denying the claims that we make about God. We've, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the God that we proclaim and the God that we worship does not exist. And we're more pitiable than atheists who don't believe in him anyway, or so they say. If 
Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then there is no forgiveness of sins. And we are still heavy laden and guilty and full of shame. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then there's no form of life after death. Just take that category of floating up in some spiritual netherworld out of your vocabulary. Theologically, it doesn't exist. At least not enduring forever and ever. It exists only in preparation, anticipation for resurrection from the dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are denying any hope that we have in this life. Everything rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. So how's your faith? What do you believe about these things? Thank God for verse 20. But in fact, it is is a sure fact of history that Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see how at the very end he ties it all together. In fact, we don't have to worry about these six tragedies because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Well then, Paul, why did you take us through all of, that, all of those six tragedies if they're not ever going to come to pass? He wants to show you the gravity with which we hold this doctrine. You cannot treat this doctrine lightly. You cannot make it an optional part of your faith. It cannot be something that, well, I'm not quite sure if I will bodily rise from the dead or not. If you're not sure, then those six tragedies will flow into your life. He wants to show us how central, how core, how necessary a firm belief in the resurrection of Jesus and assurance in our own resurrection of the dead is central to the things that we proclaim about the gospel. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus and our own resurrection from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead, and so shall we be. I don't think you can find any other religion in the world that makes such a boast. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about how is this going to happen? What will it look like as we come closer to Easter? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are a God of power and that your promise of the gospel is not just to rescue us from these bodies or to save us from sin, but to take back the good creation of which we are a part that we ruined. And these bodies that we have ruined with our sin, you will raise from the dead and you will glorify along with the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who endures as a man for our sake. Oh, Jesus, thank you for all that you have done and continue to do. We bless you and we honor you, the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. In your name we pray. Amen.